Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode three of the Wealth Co. podcast. Okay, so this is a women's health podcast. So we figured that we should address the elephant in the room and talk about menstruation and unlearn some of the things that were told to us as kids. Today we have with us Dr. Fiona McCulloch. She's a mother, a doctor, an author, and the owner of the White Lotus Clinic in Toronto, a clinic that specializes in all things female health. Dr. Fiona is known for her book, Eight Steps to Reverse PCOS. If you're one of the 10% of women who suffer from PCOS, I'd highly recommend you read this book. It's jam-packed full of incredible info. In our conversation, we discuss what is, quote, a normal cycle and things to keep an eye out for, eggs and mitochondrial health, HPA access and how it impacts our sleep and emotional stress, and how to test for PCOS, endometriosis, and hypothyroidism. Enjoy listening and on learning. Dr. Fiona McCullough, uh, thank you for joining us. This is great. I am really excited to see what this conversation comes to. And, uh, and again, just thanks for the time. Thank you, Dasha. It's great to be here today. And it's awesome to be able to speak to your audience about this amazing topic that's so important to me. So just to get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Because I think if I just read a bio, it's not going to do you any justice. Uh, so if you can just tell us a little bit about your story and how, how you came to be in, in this women's health world. I'm a naturopathic doctor and I've been in practice since 2001. So pretty close to, to 20 years. And uh, I own a clinic in Toronto. Uh, it's called White Lotus Integrative Medicine and we practice pretty much women's health uh, almost exclusively, and um, also hormones and endocrinology is a focus of ours. Um, I've also written a book called Eight Steps to Reverse Your PCOS. So I'm very interested in the way the different hormones interact with each other, you know, the different cycles of life that women go through. And uh, so it's been my passion to share information on this for quite a long time. Your book, I, I've had a couple of friends who have read it and they're through the roof about it. So anybody who's out there who has PCOS, Eight Steps to Reverse Your PCOS by Dr. Fiona is absolutely incredible. It blends both the science as well as a very easy way to understand it. So if you have been diagnosed, I would highly, highly, highly recommend checking out that book as a, as a resource. Um, so that way you can even have a better dialogue with your doctor. So in terms of your expertise and your, you've been doing this for so long, what have, what have you seen that has changed in the past 20 years, give or take, within women's health? You know, I would say the most noticeable thing is the internet, um, which has just given patients so much information at their fingertips. And so people's knowledge and women's knowledge of their, their bodies has just gone through the roof compared to what you know, was known back when I first uh, started practicing. So I think that's the biggest thing. And because of that, women have become a lot more empowered to ask for um, and receive the healthcare that they, they need. And I love that. I think that's really great. Um, 
and we're just seeing um, you know a lot of treatments you know that maybe weren't available before becoming available people are talking to each other and sharing information so I, I absolutely love that and I think it's a bit of a revolution that's happening do you find that people are kind of less stigmatized as well about female health I feel like when I was growing up it was kind of a taboo like you don't talk about menstruation you don't um it's something that's either dirty or hidden or just go for a week in the month just kind of go away and be quiet um are you finding yes. that that's changing oh yeah absolutely like i remember when i learned about my periods the tampon lady came and she gave us uh, our two-hour lecture and told us the basics and that was like it you know that was all we learned and there wasn't really a lot of discussion of it like outside of that and even you know amongst family members it was definitely more of not not something discussed especially not in detail now i see you know um women discussing their cycles with their friends and you know talking about their hormones you know everybody has access to so much information there's definitely so much less of a taboo around it which is great because it's a normal physiologic process so yeah exactly and then in terms of research so within women's research have you as as a clinician i'm sure that you're keeping up and up with the times and up with the latest research what are the things that you're seeing that you either think we need to do more research on or kind of a, a gap that that maybe you see coming kind of in the future is going to be a gap that's going to be filled there's like a huge disparity. I'm sure you've seen some of the data on that between um, studies that have women as subjects and there's not a lot of consideration of female cycles in research either. Um, even though it's a profound area of our, you know, it affects everything about our health. So, um, you know, like for example, I can use PCOS. It's a very common condition. It affects 15 and even possibly 20% of women, which is a huge amount. And yet it receives zero, uh, less than 0.1% of the NIH research bu budget. It's crazy, you know, and it's still classified as a reproductive uh, condition within the research uh, categories that they have. So even though it causes, you know, cardiovascular, metabolic uh, dysfunctions. So because it's in that category, it receives less research. So a lot of women's conditions are kind of relegated to the realm of just like reproduction, even though our hormones affect us in every way it's not just about reproduction so yeah yeah there was something i had read about bikini medicine in quotes right Be that women's health is bikini health so everything the same for men with exception to just the areas that are underneath a bikini and that's changing because we're seeing that alzheimer's research for example while it's a disease that impacts both men and women two-thirds of all alzheimer's patients are women so it may not be bikini health and may not be what previously had been considered women's health, bikini health, but in reality, it is a women's health issue. We've got to see some changes there because, um, you know, we're 50% of the population. So it's kind of important. In terms of just, I'd love to shift into really the topic that we want to talk about today in depth. And you are known for PCOS. However, your clinic doesn't deal just with PCOS. You are, I mean, you are the, you, you have a book out on PCOS and that is something that I've seen a lot of your talks on. However, I think the thing that we would like to talk about today and is menstruation. Upcoming interview, we'll do something specific just for PCOS and deal and dive in there specifically. You know, in terms of menstruation, can you, just to start us off, 
one of the things about WealthCo and what we're trying to do here is really educate ourselves and especially even our younger girls who really don't know about menstruation and don't know even the basics. Give us a, a guide, give us an, a 101 on menstruation and what we should be knowing. Menstruation is about the actual shedding of the lining. And that is actually the result of a uh, orchestrated um, a whole bunch of different events that happen with, with different hormones. And those hormones um, range from the hypothalamus in the brain, the pituitary gland in the brain, and then trickle down to the ovary. And so maybe I can show you um, a slide just to help illustrate what I'm going to explain here. Our menstrual cycle, if you can uh, take a look at this picture, there is regulation that happens up in the brain. The very master regulator is the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is an area of the brain and it secretes pulses. And the pulses can either go fast or they can go slow. So when the pulses go slow, they cause the pituitary gland, which is uh, the master gland inside the brain, to release a hormone called FSH. FSH is the hormone that signals our ovaries to make estrogen. If you look at the picture of in the middle here of the ovary, this is the follicle inside the ovary. And when we're going to ovulate an egg, the follicle actually grows and there's two different kinds of cells inside the follicle. So the egg is encased inside these different cells. So the outer layer of cells are called the theca cells and the inner layer of cells are called the granulosa cells. So when the brain sends FSH down to the ovary, the granulosa cells of the ovary actually grow and they make estrogen. That is a very important process because this um, obviously allows our estrogen to rise. And um, as estrogen rises, the lining of the uterus gets thicker. And you know this is in preparation for implantation later on. There's also another hormone that is released by the pituitary. So if we go back up to the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus pulses quickly, it releases LH. And LH signals the theca cells on the ovary, they're the outer cells in the, the, the follicle to make uh, testosterone. Once the estrogen rises to a very high level, as you'll see there, um, the pink line, the lining becomes actually quite thick. And that rise of estrogen causes the pulsing to happen really quickly and the, there's a big surge of LH that's released. That causes the egg to come out of the follicle and to be ovulated. So once that egg comes out, the shell of the follicle stays there. So the shell, I always refer to that like a little battery, uh, has a certain amount of juice in it. It's called the corpus luteum. It doesn't really uh, take any feedback or anything like that. It's just a little battery and it fizzles out over about 14 days. So during that time, it makes progesterone. So how much juice you have in your battery determines how much progesterone you'll make. So basically that is all predetermined by that growth of the, the follicle in that first part of the cycle, how much progesterone you're gonna be able to make. So the progesterone, it changes the lining of the uterus into a more glandular form. So this prepares it for um, implantation even more. And uh, so uh, the, the corpus luteum, eventually it fizzles out, just kind of loses its juice. It's, it's, it's got a lot of energy, but at some point, it, unless you're, you actually get pregnant, um, the pregnancy hormone keeps it alive. But if you don't get pregnant, that little corpus luteum, it dissolves. And once the progesterone goes down, because there's no more being made, um, the corpus luteum makes estrogen too, by the way. It makes a lot of, of progesterone. 
Once those hormones drop, as you'll see at the end of the cycle there, the lining, it no longer has the ability to retain its structure because it doesn't have the hormones and it sheds and that's the period. So that's the men menstrual cycle. So the beginning of your menstrual cycle, your hormones are actually very low. Um, and you know that allows the, the lining to shed off and then the whole cycle starts again. We get FSH being the dominant hormone, estrogen coming out as the follicle is growing. I've just recently started learning much more about my menstruation, about my cycle. So for me, it was really interesting to even know that I had two phases, or if we go even deeper, four phases of the cycle. And it's and so what, what you're showing here, I find that really interesting because we're basically saying that menstruation is not just this three, four, five, seven days of, of a bleed, but there's a whole cycle that happens throughout the course of the month. And every single week, there's a change in hormones. And those, and so it's not, so a menstruation is not just, okay, I bleed or I don't bleed. And that's it. It's actually this cascade and this organization of the hormones that cycle differently throughout the course of the month. Is that right? Yeah. There's all these feedback loops and there's all these complicated, you know, but everything's intertwined between the, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the ovary, the hormones go back up to the brain, your brain sees them and changes what it does. Those phases are, are very different. Like if you look at it, the two big phases are the follicular phase, which is the first part where the egg is growing in making estrogen predominantly. And the second phase is the luteal phase. And that's where, you know, you've had the ovulation happen already and you're really, you know, you're, that's the only time that you actually make significant amounts of progesterone. So they're actually very distinct phases. And so we often, as women, hear about estrogen, 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 everything is estrogen. So it sounds like, I mean, there's different types of estrogen. In this case, you have estradiol. I can't pronounce that ever. Uh, yeah. And then you've estradiol, got yeah. estradiol, sorry, thank you. Uh, and then we have also progesterone, pregnenolone. Can you talk about those other hormones and what, what their importance are? Estradiol is like, by far, it's the strongest estrogen. So when people talk about estrogen, they're usually talking about estradiol. So whenever you get estrogen measure, measured in your blood, it's probably estradiol they're measuring. There's some other types of estrogen and there's metabolites. There's estrone, for example, which is more produced by your fat cells. Um, and then there's a lot of metabolites that kind of happen as you detox estrogen out. Progesterone is predominantly produced by the corpus luteum, but some of it's also made by your adrenal glands. Then there's some other hormones, obviously um, testosterone, which as I was saying, comes out of that outer shell of the follicle. That is an androgen. So um, it's necessary to be healthy um, and to function really well. You know, it's thought of, or it's sort of described as a male hormone, but it's very important for women, but it's also, you know, something you don't want too much of either. And then if you look higher up the cascade of hormones, there's the precursors. So there's pregnenolone, and DHEA. And those are precursors that can turn into other hormones. I think to quote Dr. Carrie Jones, it's it's this Goldilocks approach, unfortunately. And, and it seems like we're always just trying to keep some sort of a balance. And when we're not balanced, that's when we can start having health issues. Yes, exactly. And it's there's there's always like feedback loops. So you, you kind of always have to look at it like what caused this? And is it, you know, are you getting the proper feedback? Because a lot of times people will say, well, how do I raise my estrogen? 
And you can't really do that because the way that estrogen is raised is through this complex process from the brain, from the pituitary. And that all depends on what happened the cycle before because of all the feedback loops that happen. It's always looking at it in this, um, with a full understanding of how all the hormones actually affect each other in, in these different uh, mechanisms. So then w- my cycle that's happening, you know, in X days, let's say, is going to be impacted by not only this past month and how I've been eating, the my stress levels, but also the month before, or is it even further yes. back? Actually, it's even further back, but so um, the process of folliculogenesis, so these eggs that form, they actually start developing. So they're, they're in this state called the primordial state from the time that we're babies. And then they kind of go dormant and they sit there and they don't do too much. About a year before you're going to ovulate, they start to grow. They start to develop very slowly. And so that does impact you know, your hormonal cycles. But the, the bigger feedback loops tend to happen like the cycle before or within a couple cycles. It's a long-term process for sure. So the follicles which are going to hold the egg, is, can, it takes about a year for them to mature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, about a year. Interesting. So again, things that I did a year ago are, are going to be impacting potentially <laughs> how I feel next month. Yes. Um, a lot of their more rapid development will be, it's about three months, but they're, they do start growing for about a year before you are going to ovulate that egg. So yes, the, it's really important if, for people who are thinking of having children, for example, to really take care of their health beforehand. Um, because the eggs are, they're uh, developing, reproducing, and the mitochondria are very important in oocytes. So um, we have to think uh, like kind of long-term if we're thinking about that. So can can you touch on that as well in terms of the eggs and mitochondrial health? Uh, What's the link there? Well, oocytes are the largest cell in the body and they have a lot of mitochondria in them. And so, um, and as you can see here, they do a lot of like rapid development. And then of course they turn into an embryo and then they supply the mitochondria for the embryo. So the sperm does not supply any mitochondria for the embryo, they only come from the egg. So you always get your mitochondrial DNA from your mom. That's why, you know, it's so important to really, you know, we, find, we use a lot of mitochondrial antioxidants for fertility for patients who are trying to conceive. Because, um, you know, if we can protect the mitochondria for oxidative, from oxidative stress ahead of time, you know, we usually will, if a patient is, you know, doing an IVF cycle, for example, we'll always do this kind of support for at least three months before. And that can really like improve egg quality, but also the baby's health going forward for the rest of their life, which is kind of mind boggling. So what, what type of mitochondrial support do you give your patients who are going through IVF? I do a lot of PQQ. CoQ10. I also, um, alpha lipoic acid is another one I use. Um, carnitine can be used as well. Yeah, those are probably the, the big ones. It's interesting because a lot of time, I don't think we have this conversation about how fueling our mitochondria ends up impacting the egg, imp- impacting your pregnancy, impacting your child. And it all stems from the, the powerhouses of the cell and whether we're fueling them appropriately or not. Exactly. It's really interesting. And so in terms of the cycle, so I think you touched on the monthly cycle itself and what women typically, kind of a typical cycle and what ends up happening through menstruation. Can you touch a little bit also in terms of the full life cycle? So there's, those are your menstruating years. Now what happens either kind of, let's first talk about puberty and how a 
the, the first period and the first probably two years, I think you were talking about before, and then also even on the other side of the equation, the perimenopause and menopause. Yeah, absolutely. And I can even go back right into like gestation because I've done a lot of reading about this uh, and research about this because PCOS is a condition that no one has ever understood why it happens and why people get it. But now we are really understanding a lot more of that and it, it, it starts in the womb. And so when the ovary, so when you're a fetus and your ovaries are developing, there's key times that your ovaries actually go through development and the eggs are, you know, produced at that time. If certain things happen, you know, um, hormone disruption for some reason, you know, estrogen exposure or, uh, you know, for example, the, the mom has something going on with her hormones, um, that can alter the way that the ovary develops. And then the ovaries that you know you're born the ovaries go kind of quiet until puberty so um that imprint though has happened um and then before puberty there's something that happens first which is called adrenarch so the adrenal glands actually mature um, and produce hormones before the ovaries do and there's a reason for that in in many ways um and if you're looking at evolution part of reproduction means that you have to gain weight um, in order to support a pregnancy. And so when the adrenals activate, this actually causes some insulin resistance and some weight gain because of the cortisol that's produced. But the androgens are also produced at the same time. Um, and so you're getting things like DHEA being produced and DHEA in females turns mostly into testosterone. Um, so what you'll see with, uh, with girls is they get a lot of muscle growth, uh, before they go through puberty and, you know, they get really into sports and you'll see a lot of, that's a common thing. And then at the second thing that will happen is that the hypothalamus, uh, will start its pulsatile release of GnRH. So that hormone that comes from the brain that starts activating and the pulses start happening and the pituitary activates, starts making FSH and LH and sends those signals down to the ovary. And at that point, estrogen should become the dominant hormone um, for women. Healthy women, that's what happens. In women with PCOS, it doesn't happen. But in women who have healthy hormones, they, they do become, you know, the estrogen takes charge over the testosterone that was previously there. And then, you know, within a couple of years, you should start establishing fairly regular menstrual cycles. Um, in teenage girls, the cycles can be longer than average. So they can have a PCOS-like picture, even though they may not have PCOS. And that's because of, you know, there's more androgens um, at that time. But by the early 20s, the reproductive axis should have fully matured, you know, and there should be, you know, regular cycles coming every month. Um, and then as we get older, um, you know, those cycles should remain established. But as we start to run out of eggs and the supply of eggs becomes less, there's a hormone, it's called anti-malarian hormone. And that hormone becomes less because there's less eggs in the ovary. That actually causes your eggs to ovulate more early in your cycle. So the eggs start developing too quickly. And so women's cycles get shorter overall. So if they had like a 28 cycle, you know, you'll start to see 25 day cycle, 24 day cycle. Then there's perimenopause after that. So perimenopause, there is very irregular um, ovulation. So the eggs, they, um, there may be, you know, no egg on one cycle or the egg kind of fizzles out. So you see very jagged estrogen. So it goes up and down. It's very, very irregular. So you can see, you know, cycles just very erratic. So they could be very close together and then very far apart. 
and just back and forth, irregular bleeding. And then the last phase that happens typically is that the cycles become very far apart and then stop. So, and that can go on for, um, you know, perimenopause can go on for about 10 years. There's different phases of the shortening first and then the irregularity and then the stopping. This is fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating. I, I hadn't known about the, the shortening of the cycle as well as you. So it's, it's interesting because in terms of, a cy- of phases through life, it's you have longer cycles who are more regular. You should be having more regular cycles. And then towards the end, they get shorter, shorter until they, they no longer are, are happening. Also interesting that I think a lot of women don't know that there is a finite amount of eggs uh, that they have. Can you talk yes. about that as well? Yeah, there are, uh, you know, differences between, you know, the amount of eggs that women have, you know, and there's so many factors that relate to that. Some of them are genetic and some of them are, you know, environmental um, factors and, you know, meaning things like external to your, your genetics. So it could be stress or lifestyle or so many things that impact that. If you, there's this test called anti-malarian hormone that you can get, and it'll sort of give you an idea of your egg reserve. It's not hundred percent accurate because it can change for other reasons too, um, particularly if there's hormone, hormonal influences on it. Um, but yeah, there's a certain amount that we have and you know we're gonna run out at a certain point. They've also found evidence there are still some in there, some uh, stem cells and uh, primordial follicles, but there's, it, there's not the capacity to bring them out because you need all the other eggs to create that hormonal environment for all of that to happen. And when the supply gets really low, it just sort of shuts off. In terms of kind of thinking about a regular cycle, you mentioned that it should be quite regular. What does that look like? And what is, what is regular or normal versus not normal? So uh, going back to the tampon lady in school, um, this, this caused me a lot of problems because mm-hmm. when I learned about what was supposed to be a normal length of a cycle, the, the tampon lady told us it was anywhere between 22 and 45 days, mm-hmm. which is, you know, so I had PCOS my whole life and I did not know, I mean, I, I didn't really realize what this was until I was about, you know, I'd finished medical school and you know, notice that I, you know, I was like putting the pieces together and got the testing. And yes, that's what it was, despite years of treatment for cystic acne and, you know, very irregular cycles and all of the symptoms. But, you know, those very, that big wide range includes people who have hormonal dysregulations. So, but what I see as normal personally in my practice uh, for women that don't have hormonal dysregulations is anywhere between 26 and 34 days. But if there's a consistency where it's like 34 days kind of all the time, then there might be a problem. Or if it's like 25 days all the time, you know, then we might be looking at low ovarian reserve or another issue like a luteal phase defect. So I think it also matters like it's normal to have, you know, a 26 day cycle and then a 31 day cycle and then a 28. Mm -hmm. That's that's pretty normal. But it's sort of the the frequency um, by which you're having these, you know, long or short, or if there's a consistency to that. And so for those women, because I think there are a number of women who are starting to track their cycles with different tracking apps, Clue, Natural Cycles, those those different ones, and they're starting yeah. to say, okay, well, I know I know that I have two phases, there are kind of two parts to my cycle, the luteal, the follicular, and the luteal. I know when I ovulate, and I'm realizing that my luteal phase is actually extra long. Or what is your take on that? Is that yeah, just yeah. what's your take? 
that's a very interesting question because it is super important when you're trying to figure out what's going on to figure out like, why is your cycle long? Is it because the follicular phase is long, you know, um, or why is my cycle short? The, the biggest variation you'll see is short cycles could be from two different causes. The follicular phase, that first phase, it's typically around 14 days. If it's shorter than that, you're ovulating early. And that is almost, not almost always, but many times it is from a little bit of a low ovarian reserve. Um, so you'll see that something is causing the eggs to ovulate earlier in the cycle. Um, another cause of a short cycle would be a short luteal phase. So you could be ovulating at day 14, but have low progesterone. And then that second part of the cycle is short. That's very important. If you have a long follicular phase, so longer than 14 days, a few different causes for that. Um, one would be PCOS, so high testosterone actually slows the egg down. So it uh, you know, takes longer to, to develop, it takes a lot more time for it to, to ovulate. And so you'll see that long first part of the cycle. Um, and then some other potential causes for that too um, are stress inhibition of the ovary. So that would be um, in the category of hypothalamic amenorrhea, where, you know, there's a stressor um, or, you know, weight loss, for example, um, those are common causes or exercise, excessive exercise, um, that will cause suppression of FSH and LH, and it takes longer to ovulate so that you could have a very long follicular phase. The only way to really differentiate those is to look at hormone testing. And so is there any advantage to having a longer follicular versus luteal phase? Or it's just, that just is what, what it is. And maybe we need to actually see that as a health issue that we need to solve. It's not really advantageous to have it longer than 14 days. Mm -hmm. um, if it goes longer than that, if it's consistently longer than that, there's probably something inhibiting the ovulatory process. But in teenagers, that's very common because they have a lot of testosterone. So when the follicular phase is short, on the cycle before, the eggs have prematurely developed. And so mm. the egg quality is lower. So we don't want it to be short at all. Interesting. Interesting. Again, it goes back to the previous month maybe impacting this upcoming month. Yes, exactly. And, you know, it's that anti-malarian hormone. It stops the eggs from like developing early. And so they're prematurely developing all the time. And it interferes with everything, you know, if, if you think back about the structure of the egg and how it develops. And so then in terms of um, finishing off in of the kind of a girl's cycle and, and normalizing. So if a girl, right now, I believe that, the, that women have started menstruating earlier uh, and puberty has, has kind of shifted to earlier. Are you seeing that with your clients? Yeah, I do see it. Um, I, I feel like it, it is happening because of endocrine disruption in the environment, um, but also possibly um, metabolic um, issues and weight gain and estrogen production from that too. It's definitely a phenomenon I'm seeing. What do you mean by that last comment of endocrine, not only endocrine disruption, but also um, what weight gain? Yeah, because the fat cells, they make uh, estrogen. And so it, it can be involved in, you know, the axis activating earlier. So fat cells are not just these cells that are, are kind of dead to us, but in, in reality, they are creating estrogen. So if a young girl yes. is on the heavier side or has more, more fat cells, then maybe those cells are increasing the estrogen and therefore causing puberty to happen earlier. Is that the link? Yes, exactly. And then there's, um, yeah, there's all the adipokines, which are the hormones like adiponectin, 
um, if there's low levels of that, you know, it disrupts a lot of the, the hormonal axis. So yeah, fat is an endocrine organ and it's, you know, amazing what it does. But um, I think it's probably a combination of, of things like that. And we need to learn more about it, but it's definitely um, something that's, that seems to be happening in society at large. And so girls, girls are having puberty earlier. And I think you, when we were talking offline, you were saying kind of the first two years of puberty is, is atypical. It could be longer periods, it could be, and then it normalizes. So again, going back to the a normal cycle, what are the things that you would see as, yes, this is part of a cycle, it's normal, it's strange, for example, cramps or cravings or acne that comes around the cycle, but those are normal versus the things that we should really think about and then come to a doctor like you to say, hey, this, this seems a little off. All the time I have women come in and they're like thinking things are normal that are not normal <laughs> that they've just learned to live with. Right. And it's so <laughs> exactly. sad, you know? So um, what I would say is, is normal is a, you know, once the, the cycles have established is a fairly regular cycle. Most of the time there might be some two or three days of back and forth here and there. And that's, that's normal. Um, there shouldn't be a, a pain, significant pain with the menstrual period. Um, a small amount of cramping is fairly normal. Any significant amount of cramping that requires medication is not normal. Uh, many women have believed that it is. Um, <laughs> Midol has done well. <laughs> Midol, exactly, but it's not normal um, to have that happen. You know, an excruciating pain where you're in bed all day is totally not normal at all. Um, so that is, is one thing. The other thing that's not normal is heaviness, like extreme heaviness with clotting. Mm -hmm. There are so many women that have you know, heavy, heavy menses. And, you know, you're really supposed to, to lose anywhere between a half to two ounces of blood. And more than that is not, not normal. And a pad usually hold, can hold about an ounce. So it's, it shouldn't be super heavy. Um, and the clotting should be very minimal. So um, a little bit of clotting on your heaviest day, but you shouldn't be you know, having, you know, in Canada, we have like the loonies and toonie coins, which are like this size. You shouldn't be having clots like that. We always ask women the size of their clots according to, to coins. But if you're having a lot of clotting, it means your flow is so heavy that, you know, it's creating clotting because menstrual blood, it doesn't usually clot. I think those are, those are the main things. And it is, it is normal, you know, to have a 14 day luteal phase as well. That, that should be what's happening in, in a healthy cycle. You mentioned two ounces of blood. That's it. That seems yeah. so low compared to, I, I mean, from, from what I've, I've experienced at least, right. It seems like yeah. you're, you're going through a lot more than that, but perhaps that's, I don't know, maybe that's just erroneous or, what most of me and my friends have experienced that it's you're bleeding much more than that yes it's also hard to tell how much you're bleeding because we change our pads more frequently so unless but if you're using a diva cup you could you could tell mm. um but yeah a lot of women just have really heavy periods you know and uh they're they're they consider it normal but um they're actually you know losing blood and we find most are anemic and need to be taking iron also so mm. It's one of the things that, you know, you can correct it, but also iron support is very important um, mm -hmm. for heavy, heavy menses. Mm -hmm. And that brings to a question that one of our members had asked in terms of seed cycling um, and maybe even just nutrition. Have you, uh, have you seen that? Have you used, do you use it with your patients? What is seed cycling? 
Yeah, seed cycling is super popular. It's something that there isn't really any evidence for it in the literature. Um, there's, I think, one study on flax seeds and that um, they did improve the menstrual cycle, but it's difficult to know, you know, if it's simply the nutrition of the flax seeds, so like the fatty acids. Um, it's hard to know that those specific seeds have influence on specific hormones without any evidence for that. That being said, there's a lot of people that do it and find it helpful. And it's certainly, those seeds are very healthy, you know, so they have a lot of, you know, uh, minerals and really good fatty acids and nutrition that a lot of women are deficient in healthy fats. And many of these fats are anti-inflammatory. So um, plus many people have seen that it works for them and it's quite harmless. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing to try. We just don't have actual evidence for it. There's just not been studies on it. So, you know, that's the deal. But I think if it works, go for it. I think it's a, a good thing to increase um, fatty acids, uh, essential fatty acids in your diet. Yeah. And is there, from a diet perspective then, are you, are there certain things that you ask? Are there, are there things that you give your clients to have in the follicular phase versus the luteal phase uh, as supplements? You mentioned iron as an example. Iron, I would generally supplement that every day for someone who has, you know, more of a, an issue because it's, it's really hard to raise iron levels in women with heavy periods. It's, it's really hard and it takes um, like continuous supplementation. Mm. And then sometimes I'll give extra iron during the periods um, as well. So I find that very important. And then when it comes to food, I mean, I think there's big differences in the way that the, uh, the blood sugar regulation is in different areas of the, of the cycle, in particular, the luteal phase. Um, there's definitely changes in our cortisol levels in the luteal phase uh, that seem to be related to uh, progesterone, particularly uh, under stress, not uh, basal, but uh, meaning like not at the baseline, but if you exercise, for example, there's some differences and there's been some conflicting studies on this, but that progesterone seems to amplify the HPA axis response to stressors. So it's often good to, you know, it's always good to keep your blood sugar balanced, but especially in the luteal phase. And that's why, you know, I think there's, there's many reasons for the cravings um, and we don't understand all of them, but probably part of it is the HPA axis. So if you've got low blood sugar, that stresses the HPA axis because you have to release cortisol to raise blood sugar. Keeping blood sugar balanced at that phase is, is more important. Avoiding avoiding sugar, balancing out your meals with protein, healthy fats, fiber, and keeping the carbs kind of under control, you know, is really uh, good for that that phase. I think like it, the big thing um, is just in those two phases. And then in the menstrual phase, I think just the extra iron is is really key um, just to help with the with the blood loss. And you mentioned the HPA axis. Can you dig in on that? So the HPA axis is the hypothalamus to the pituitary. So similar to the, the, what we chatted about before. And then the signals go to the adrenal glands. So the adrenal glands are probably well known as being the glands that secrete cortisol, which is the stress hormone. Um, but cortisol does a lot of other things too. It's not really just for stress. So some studies have found that in the follicular phase, if you exercise, for example, um, your cortisol won't change all that much compared to in the luteal phase. There's uh, also in women with PMS um, have different responses too, like they have a blunted response to exercise in the luteal phase. 
So, um, so there are differences with the female hormones and how that HPA axis responds to stress. So um, exercise is, is considered a stress in uh, many ways by the adrenal glands. You know, many, many things uh, affect the HPA axis, including sleep, um, emotional stress, uh, blood sugar, um, and uh, even, you know, there's, there's other interesting things about that where when you're in your luteal phase, your temperature rises and that can disrupt your sleep. So then you can have poor sleep more in your luteal phase. So it's all intertwined again. I actually, that's interesting because I found, um, I've, I've been tracking my, my sleep with the aura ring and, and my temperature as well. And it's just, I don't need to look at anything else but that. And that would give me a very good understanding of my cycle just because of, of the increase in temperature and the not as good sleep uh, in the luteal phase. It's really interesting just to think about all the, the concert of different things that, that happen there. It's, it's exciting and also frustrating, I think, because you think that there's so many different, it seems so complicated and it seems like there's this symphony of things where if it works well, it's beautiful, but how many times is it working well? It, one month it works well, the other month because you have a pandemic, you're not stressed out, you're not sleeping well, and then that affects the next month, right? Like there's so many interesting like reasons for those those changes to be there that are not necessarily bad and more about like bonding with your partner. So the progesterone can make you more vigilant and they find that women in the luteal phase are more strongly bonded to their partner and more vigilant over their partner hmm. because they might be pregnant. So um, maybe the, that's why, I, I don't know, the sleep goes down, who knows, right? Um, they don't really necessarily know the answers to these questions, but there's, there's people theorizing about it. Yeah, it's interesting. And starting to research it as well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are common misdiagnoses for women related to their cycle? What are things that you find that you need to untrain or unlearn or undiagnose that, with clients who come to you? PCOS is definitely commonly misdiagnosed. It's uh, 50% of women that have it uh, don't know that they have it. So it's underdiagnosed a lot, especially if I find in women who are a bit older because they often will start ovulating more regularly just because PCOS, that's the course of PCOS is that ovulation improves with age. So that's one thing. And then I, a lot of teenage girls are are um, misdiagnosed with PCOS because they get an ultrasound of their ovaries. They see all the follicles um, because our modern ultrasounds are very sensitive. They may have acne and irregular cycles. And so then they're told they have PCOS. They don't necessarily turn out to have PCOS in a few years. So that's you know definitely something I see very frequently. I would say also endometriosis is very much underdiagnosed. There is no great way to um, screen for that without a laparoscopy. Um, and so there's many women who have undiagnosed endometriosis who are suffering with very painful periods and all kinds of issues. And it can even turn into a systemic illness. Um, a lot of my endometriosis patients are misdiagnosed with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, and they have endometriosis because it creates a systemic inflammatory condition. So that is... Um, you know, just super, super common. Um, the other uh, misdiagnosis I would say I see a lot are hypothyroid patients um, are often uh, because it can affect their cycles. So they can be just misdiagnosed with something like PCOS or just put on the pill 
and you know never have their thyroid checked is something I see a lot. It's confusing. And the other, I, uh, the other time I see PCOS misdiagnosed is after stopping birth control pills. So once you stop birth control pills, um, there's a bit of a rebound production of androgens and it can create a PCOS-like state that looks like that in the hormone picture. Um, but they may not actually have PCOS. And one of the best ways to tell is to go back to the person's history and say, you know, ask them about their periods. Like, what were they like before you went on the pill? Did you have any of these problems? Um, if they didn't, then I would start to really, uh, you know, hold off on that diagnosis, try to treat it and see what happens, retest and see, you know, do they actually have PCOS? Because it can really look like that. There can be PCOS-like pictures with endocrine disruption in general, but the difference with PCOS is it's more developmental. It, start, it's, it does not go away. It's always there. A lot of the time they put girls on the pill before their reproductive axis matures. And um, they end up on the pill for 10 years. And then they come off of the pill and they're still, they go back to that state, that immature reproductive axis looks like they have PCOS, but then their axis can mature and they, they, they don't actually have PCOS. So I know that we're going to have a separate topic or a separate talk on PCOS itself, but just for those who are listening, can you just say what are the top symptoms that you see for PCOS and for endometriosis in case somebody is having these symptoms and hasn't yet gone to the doctor to see if they could get diagnosed with this? For PCOS, it always has androgen excess at the center of it. So you're going to see hirsutism, so hair growth on your chin um, or other areas like under your belly button is another common area tends to be coarse hair. It's not the same as having hair here, but it's under your chin area is the, is the most common place. Acne, usually on the jawline or hair loss from the head, but the hair loss is the separating of the part in the middle. It's not diffuse hair loss. It's a certain kind. It's called androgenetic alopecia. So usually you'll see that in PCOS, one of those symptoms. Um, the other things that you'll see um, are long cycles. So, you know, usually longer than 33 days consistently. So going on for a long time, very long cycles. A lot of women are like 40 day cycles. Some go months without periods. So, um, you know, those are, those are definitely the most common, but there's also in some women, but not all insulin resistance that you'll see in PCOS. So weight gain around the stomach, difficulty losing weight. So trying everything and working really hard. And some of these patients I see, they do so much and like they eat so well and exercise all the time and just cannot lose weight. And that is something, but not all women with PCOS have that. Endometriosis is a little bit difficult sometimes to figure out, but because not all women do have pain who have it, but for the ones who have more severe endometriosis, you'll definitely see pelvic pain. So menstrual cramps that are pretty severe um, are, are very common. Um, needing medication, you know, like take, needing stigmidol or naproxen just to get through the period. Also, you can see um, pain with intercourse, um, pain with bowel movements, uh, pain with urination. Um, and then another thing I see a lot of women with endometriosis are misdiagnosed with IBS. So they get a lot of digestive problems because it can stick on the outside of the colon. So especially like before the period time, during the period, having a lot of IBS, and you also have the really painful periods, this kind of, you know, can look like endometriosis. So it's good to get an investigation into that. That's really interesting. That's, I, I hadn't thought about that last bit. So one of the things that I think a lot of women 
nowadays are asking is, well, I can be on the pill and I don't have to deal with my cycle. Or I, I don't really want to deal with my cycle because I'm busy, I have things to do, I don't need this. Can you talk about why it's important to have a good, steady, stable menstrual cycle and how important that is for health? It is really important. And, um, you know, I'm not against the pill, though, in certain situations. Sometimes it's the, the best type of birth control. Sometimes it does solve problems. First, I am okay with, you know, patients being on the pill if that works for them, as long as they're able to understand, like, the risks and benefits. And, you know, sometimes it's the right thing. Um, but you know, the, the hormones in the pill are not the same as our hormones. So they're not bioidentical. They're actually different, different altogether. And there's, um, you know, the type of estrogen that's in there is not the same as our estrogen that we make from our ovaries, the types of what they call progestin in there. Um, there's a whole bunch of different ones and actually they all have different actions. So they don't cross the blood brain barrier generally. Um, and then they work differently. So some of them turn into more testosterone-like substances. Some turn into more estrogen-like substances. They can have just completely different effects on our body. Without those hormones, so now we're taking away our natural estrogen and progesterone. And those hormones impact our brain profoundly. Like they have huge effects on our brain. So what we know is like your brain will shift into a somewhat different state when you're on the birth control pill. And that's why many women have mood changes. They feel like almost a different person in certain ways. Um, or, you know, there's even studies showing that, you know, you're attracted to a different partner, you know, when you're on the birth control pill, which is very uh, mind boggling to think about that. And then um, bone health can be impacted, particularly if the pill started very young in life. So um, because these substances don't have the same effects on the bone and they don't have the same effects on anything actually. So cardiovascular, we see different you know, risks with the pill in the cardiovascular system with POTS. And you know, it's the progestins that are in there. So it is more of um, you know, something that it, it's not ideal for health, but sometimes it's the best choice. And so it just depends on what other options do you have you know, what, what is it that you're dealing with? Can we correct it without the pill? Um, so I really wish that they would come up with better birth control for women. Um, maybe one day that will happen or for men so that women don't have to <laughs> be on birth control <laughs> all the time. But um, I think it's something that it does affect our body in a lot of, a lot of ways. It's fascinating to me that a lot of these things, they, they serve a really good purpose. Right, the birth control pill is fantastic for the certain purposes, uh, but yeah. the question is that it's almost like we are we're trying to manipulate our our biology. We don't like it, <laughs> or it doesn't. It, we yeah. don't think it serves us, and so it's it's one of those things where we've said, okay, we don't we don't want to have a natural menstrual cycle because it's not convenient, and in truth, it's one of it. It really is a superpower for us, and it is something that yeah. we we should not be ashamed of. In reality, we should be using it for, for the beauty of what it is. It's, it, you know, during certain cycles, uh, during certain periods of, of your, of the month, there are times when you're more detail oriented or more in a yeah. introspective time or, or more kind of bonded to your partner. Like these are things that yeah. I mean, to me, it's just, it's fascinating and it's magical. And yet we've, we've muted them. Yes. Oh my gosh. I couldn't agree with you more on that. And it's like part of what it makes us amazing as women and part of the amazing 
things that women have done like across history it all relates to this you know and yeah there's certain times that we're just so like sharp and then there's certain times like we bring people together and it's like you're just like erasing all that the thing i don't like is when they use it like a band-aid you know it's just like the anything's wrong here you go you know just shut off your hormones it's wrong you know to use it that way especially i think in young girls you know so and without especially even understanding sometimes they don't even diagnose people they don't like look into why they're having this problem. Instead, we'll just take that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like dismissing the actual concern. And, you know, because there's a Band-Aid available to, and then you'll be quiet and won't complain anymore. You know, right. that's the part that just gets me fired up. <laughs> yep, exactly. I think we're missing, I mean, this conversation that we're having now is fascinating because there is so much that we don't know. There is so much that we don't understand about our physiology and yet we're not having this conversation with our teachers with our our elder siblings our mothers our grandmothers because i don't know why but it seems like we're having a little bit of a, a re revitalization of it of saying actually this is like i was saying before a superpower and if we open up that dialogue to saying this this is natural and it's not a band. You don't need a bandaid to put over it, but rather you should lean into it and see what, what you should do every single month and what are the superpowers you have every, you know, in certain weeks of every super month of every month. Like I track my cycles and I know like, okay, this time of the month, I know I'm going to be able to be really productive. So, and then this time of the month, I should just forget about it and take a bath, you know, right. and just enjoy that and just not like put that pressure on myself. So it's like really, it just really helps you connect to understand these things, right? To connect to like your own, like, you know, superpowers, just like you say, and also when to respect your need for that downtime and not like push yourself at a time when that's not really what you're supposed to be doing. And it's not natural. Uh, there's been a couple of questions. If you're okay with that, we'll and kind of just go through the questions that people have asked. What can make periods irregular? What are the things that my cycles, for example, are quite are quite regular? Now, I know with the the stress and the pan pandemic that's been happening, it's been a little bit less less regular. What other types of things like that would impact a cycle? With stress, like a lot of people always think of stress as just like emotional, but then there's physical stress. So weight loss, you know, for example, sometimes people will do um, a lot of fasting and that, you know, will, that's perceived as a stress by your body and can make your periods irregular. Um, but especially like losing weight from your set point rapidly down, um, that, that can definitely cause that to happen. Um, exercise that's more like super intense is also a stress. Um, so that for sure. Um, the other things would be conditions like PCOS uh, very commonly cause irregular cycles. Coming off of birth control pills uh, is a very common cause of that to happen. Uh, thyroid dysfunction um, often causes irregular cycles or heavy cycles or you know shorter cycles. And then perimenopause. So um, you know, especially if you see the cycle shortening and then becoming irregular, um, that is another major cause as well. How often does it take to cure somebody from PCOS? So if they've been living with this, what are, what are the ranges? And obviously there's a range, but what do you see with your clients? I always use the word reverse because it's really not a curable condition because what we're finding is like this developmental endocrine disruption is what, um, 
it really is the seed of PCOS. So that is a permanent um, change to the ovary that happens. And But you can reverse a lot of the disruption. It really depends on what elements the person has. So if somebody with PCOS is very insulin resistant, you know, they're their body mass index is, is quite high. They've got a lot of um, abdominal fat. It really requires their insulin levels to come down. And that depends on, you know, how much do they have to do in order to do that? That varies from person to person. So that could be maybe take like a year, you know, to really work with diet on, with someone who's had a lifelong uh, problem like that. If it's something with respect to more like ovulation and there's not a lot of insulin resistance or it's minimal, usually within three to six months, you can see the person have regular cycles again and a, a significant reduction in their symptoms like a vandrogen excess. It's always a lifelong process with PCOS, so they have to continue. You know, even now, I still like most of my symptoms are, are reversed, but you know, new things come up, you know last like a couple of years ago, I lost like half my hair. It's just something like you're always just working on your health, you know, with PCOS um, for the rest of your life, basically, which is yeah. good. You know, I always say it's a good thing. Yeah. It's a mindset shift. It's it, whereas we, we often right now think, okay, I'm going to take this one pill. It's going to cure me. I'm going to move on with my life. And in truth, yeah. health is not just a silver bullet that you're done with. It's, it requires effort because your body is still changing every single month and every single year. And I think that's, yeah. I think we're seeing that as well, where people are saying, yes, I understand that my body is going to change and my brain as well. Right. And I need to yeah. figure out what is that hack that's going to work now, which maybe that hack didn't work two two years ago, or maybe it did work two years ago and now it doesn't work today. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Cause yeah, as women, unlike men, our, our bodies change a lot more, um, every month, you know, their bodies change profoundly, never mind like over 10, 15 years. So it's so true. Yeah, we have a we have a monthly cycle, whereas men have a daily more of a daily cycle, the ultradian versus the versus the monthly cycle that we have. Let's see here. Okay, next question. Why? Why do I want sex most most right before my period? That's a good question. It's not the most common time, I would say. Um, generally, the most common time is like before ovulation. Um, and that's because there's a little burst of, there's a huge burst of estrogen. And a lot of people think testosterone is what causes sex drive in women. Um, that comes from men's medicine. <laughs> in women, it does help with sex drive, but estrogen is the, the big player in sex drive for women. Um, and so you see that big burst of estrogen and then there's a huge um, increase in libido. Before the period, you're having like a drop in those hormones, um, but there can be a lot more kind of nervous system activation, I would say, because there's a decrease in GABA. So you could become more alert and more energetic in a certain way, like people love cleaning their house at that time. So maybe it's a, if someone might have low energy at other times, maybe it's, it's something about that that would be causing it. But I wouldn't be able to say 100%, you know, why um, in that particular person without really asking them all about their health. Right, absolutely. It is interesting that, I, I can't remember, I think it was Sarah Hill, who was, who was speaking about it and saying how women who are on the pill don't have that spike in estrogen. And so they, aren't, they don't have that spike right before ovulation to say, okay, now I'm, I'm feeling you know, more sexy, I'm feeling um, you know, more flirtatious, uh, whereas yeah. women who are not on the pill, they have that spike. Is that accurate to say as well? Yeah. Have you seen that? 
That, well, women on the pill have no estrogen, actually. Mm. So um, one of the most common causes uh, or common complaints on the pill is like libido eh, killed, no libido. Um, and uh, yeah, it's like there's no estrogen and that, that the form of estrogen and it's not even estrogen. It's like another substance and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, affect uh, sex drive at all in that, in the way that estrogen does. Mm. Have, have you seen patients uh, want to be on the pill, but then take estrogen as well? to try and balance that off? You know, I haven't seen people do that. I have seen actually some interesting things with PMDD where they will, um, you know, suppress all the hormones and then add back in, you know, suppress with a birth control pill mm -hmm. and then add back in some bioidentical hormones. So I have seen that, um, but that's in very severe cases where it's you know, pretty, pretty intense. And, you know, they've tried everything else um, and it does work. Um, but I think that with there's, there's probably not a lot of precedent or studies on that. And mm. with the clotting, I think that would be the risk. Um, so, uh, but, you know, it makes sense uh, that it would soften some of those impacts. I think with hormones in general and either creams or pills or uh, suppositories, it's, it's quite a, to correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's quite a big shock to the system. So it could be, you know, you, you could see somebody really having negative impacts even if, the, if it's not dialed in correctly. I had, I had a friend who um, kind of as, as an anecdotal story, he was saying that his father was on testosterone cream and he changed quite a bit because that hormone is so strong that even if we are just putting it in our skin, which doesn't seem like it's anything, it can really change your, your body's chemistry and your brain chemistry as well. So much. Yeah. And many hormone creams are absorbed very well, in particular um, estrogen and testosterone. And so, yeah, you can absorb a lot with, uh, from a cream and um, it can affect, for women, it can affect feedback loops. So there's always that to consider, like, you know, and that's in the, in a way, the mechanisms behind the pill, they, you're adding in the estrogen and it's blocking the feedback loop. So when you're on the pill, it wouldn't matter. But outside of that, yes, it could definitely affect a lot of different things. And, you know, hormones totally affect our behavior. Um, it's, it's very clear. So yeah, um, testosterone is one uh, for sure. We see a lot of women with fertility issues with low uh, egg counts taking DHEA as a hormone, very high doses, 75 milligrams, three times a day. And many of them report feeling very irritated and impulsive is another, another thing that they'll feel like they're you know, making decisions they wouldn't necessarily make. It's kind of um, interesting they, how they can affect your behavior and personality. Uh, one of the questions that we had actually was how, how can I increase DHEA and testosterone? That was the next one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a good question. So, um, so first thing to, to know about those is they decrease with age a lot. So DHEA is very high when you're young, peaks around 25, and then it decreases with age. And that is part of our clock, our body's clock. That's part of, part of what you're dealing with. So you have to look at your levels with respect to your age. Anything that causes stress will reduce hormone production in general, including DHEA and, and trickling down into testosterone. So um, there's different things to think about. So some of the testosterone comes from your ovary, and then some of it comes from your adrenals. So if you have low DHEA, then you know it's, firstly, is it low for your age or is it normal for your age? 
you're not going to have the same DHEA that you had at 25, no matter what you do, uh, other than taking DHEA, then you could raise it up to that level. Mm -hmm. But if you have something that's causing you stress, if you impact, you know, if you take some adrenal support, or if you do, you know, improve your sleep, uh, do some meditation, do things that, you know, reduce stress, your DHEA that, that had been lowered by the stress would raise back to its level. If there's something that's affecting your ovulation, you have low testosterone and normal DHEA, then you could work on something to help with the ovulation. So the process of ovulation or improving mitochondrial support for the eggs. So there's that way of looking at it too. So yeah, hopefully that answers that question. No, that's great. Cause it's, it sounds like, again, a lot of these, the ways, the hacks that we can get back to health is, is natural. Right. And it's, and it's sleep better, yeah. kind of get more in line with their circadian rhythm, wake up with the sun, go to bed early. It seems almost too easy to a certain extent because we're saying get back to a more natural way of living. And yet, because yes. of our society, because we're always on our phones and, and we're also stressed because of emails and all these different little things that are impacting, you know, even kind of impacting our dopamine centers and causing yeah. us to really need that, that validation, need that email popping up to say, yes, this is, this is good. This is beneficial. Uh, and in reality, it's all of the devices that are around us, not only the devices, but the, the daily life, the daily stress is the things that are really causing many of these health issues. And yet it's difficult to parse that apart and say, okay, I want health, but I don't want to change my lifestyle because that's a lot yes. more difficult to do than just to have a pill of some sort, right? Or, or have a surgery or yes. whatnot. Yes, it's so true. Um, like my undergrad was in molecular biology and genetics and I'm like a huge science nerd and I love learning all this stuff. Like I just like geek out on it all day long and I never get bored of it. But then I'm a naturopathic doctor and everything always comes back to those basic principles of naturopathic medicine, which is, you know, lifestyle, diet, sleep, exercise. <laughs> and that's the answer, you know, when, when it comes to it, you know, and the supplements help, but those are powerful. And, you know, I always find that having the, those two, it really kind of just gets clearer and clearer to me the longer I practice that, that these are what make the big difference for, for people. One question that comes up a lot is working out. And uh, I think a lot of times people are saying during your cycle, you shouldn't work out. You shouldn't do um, too many HIIT trainings. You should do more of the yoga. Um, what's, what's your take on that? I think everyone's a little different. Um, and I think it sort of depends on where you stand in, in the first place. So like if you've had any testing for your cortisol and, you know, there's people that have really robust cortisol like curves and they're, they're, they're able to tolerate a lot of stress. And you know, there's really no reason to think that that would be a problem. But then there's the women who have really heavy periods, you know. If that's going on then then maybe it would be stressful because you're already in a kind of physiologically stressful situation. So there's that or if you're already, you know, exhausted and fatigued, then you know, adding that during your menstrual cycle might be too much. But um, what they found is that most of the time, the um, you know from this the study I was referencing earlier, um, even though there's some conflicting info too, um, that during the follicular phase there's pretty stable responses um, after exercise compared to the luteal phase in which there 
uh, does seem to be more of an increase of cortisol production. So there's that to consider in that, like, if you kind of already have an adrenal issue and you're already kind of tired and exhausted and going through stress, maybe at that, you know, the second phase of your cycle and wouldn't be the best time to do something super intense. Um, yeah, there's people who are, you know, they exercise regularly, their bodies are used to that, they're really healthy. Um, in those kinds of situations, I don't really see any reason not to exercise, you know, in that, uh, in that time. I think it, it does much more good. Our bodies are made to release cortisol, and it's not bad to have a, a physiologic stressor if it, you know, we can't just be like, living in a bubble. Um, I mean, this, our bodies are made to survive all kinds of stress. So it's, it's normal, you know, to, to experience that. So basically, if you are already stressed out, then maybe it doesn't make sense to do five, six sessions of HIIT training every single week. Maybe there is more the yin yoga or Pilates or just a walk or just kind of more the, the things that are on the calming side of things. Even though it's, it's interesting because I find that a lot of women who are probably kind of more the type A, more the goal getter, got to get this, got to go for my spin class, got to get my HIIT um, in, and in reality, that's almost the opposite of what they need. They need more of the, the calming down so that they're not boosting their cortisol more. That go, go, go kind of drives you towards that. But then it's like, you're not getting into that, that state that you need the down state. So mm. I think, you know, if you're having sleeping problems, you're really stressed out, a stressful job, it might be good to switch into be doing some of those more restorative, um, exercises in the, especially the luteal phase or during your period. Mm. I find that also, and I've been experimenting with it, is when I'm the first three days of my cycle, I actually find that I can do more intense workouts, probably because my, I'm already, you know, I'm already kind of not stressed. My body is already a little confused, <laughs> you know, and it's, and I find that it actually helps if I do have cramps and I go for a hike or a walk or um, even, even grounding like barefoot on the ground. Uh, I find that that really does help with the cramps and perhaps it's, it's also a mindset shift of, okay, I'm going out um, rather than being inside and only focusing on the pain. Uh, I can, I can focus on so many other things outside. Yeah, absolutely. And it improves circulation. And mm -hmm. there's um, studies that show that women have painful periods, they have a uterine artery constriction as well. So it probably is helpful in that way. So I think listen to your body. And I, for, for me personally, I can exercise just, I feel great when I exercise during my period as well. Like I have no trouble with that. So at that time of your cycle, everything's pretty stable. Like you're not getting that big crash that you're getting but the week before, you know, where that's really stressful, the, the period, like the, your brain is kind of in a, like a stable state. So, mm -hmm. and you know, that whole phase is pretty, you have a pretty good uh, stress response. So mm -hmm. yeah, that makes complete sense. Genetics is an interesting one. So how can we use genetics to align our cycle? Have you brought genetics into looking at people's issues. So I think at one point you did mention that PCOS hypothetically has, a, has kind of comes from a woman when she was pregnant and how that can impact PCOS for the daughter. But is there anything else like that from a genetic standpoint that can impact our cycle? There are SNPs that impact hormones um, in many ways. Um, I guess the problem with that, I'll see patients who have genetic tests and then I'll look at their actual results and they don't correlate. 
And it's just that we, genetics are only, like SNPs especially, are only about really predisposition and possibilities. They're not necessarily going to be real, like reality in an mm -hmm. actual patient. So I find it really problematic to make decisions based on SNPs rather than like what you're seeing clinically and in like lab work. It's, I, I think it's okay to correlate them, but I think that, you know, um, it's hard to say 100% that if you have this SNP, you're gonna have this problem. That being said, there are SNPs that do affect hormones, like there's DENND1 that causes androgen excess, and that's more associated with PCOS, but only 50% uh, in that one study have it. So it's like just a part of things, you know, like COMT affects estrogen detox. So there's all those things to consider, but I think that we still always have to like correlate your symptoms and your lab work and then look at the SNPs with that in mind. And then you can, they can be powerful, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost, it's an indication, but it's not, don't use your genetics testing as a Bible to say, this is why I have this. It might just be showing a predisposition for something, um, which may actually end up not showing up because of epigenetics and how your environment is impacting you. So maybe that predisposition from a genetic standpoint doesn't actually get turned on because you're living a really good lifestyle where you're focusing on your health. A hundred percent. Yes. It's something that it can be a predisposition, but a lot of the time when you're looking at the real, the real data from the person's lab work, it doesn't correlate. So it always has to be like confirmed. And yeah, if you know that you have MTHFR C677T and you're homozygous for that, you should probably take methylfolate, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a heart attack, you know? So there's those considerations and like there's so many other elements that go into like figuring out which supplements to take because you can can take all the supplements for your SNPs and still not do anything for the problem that you have um, because those aren't really necessarily what's going to be presenting in your case. And so in terms of you see patients all the time, what types of lab tests do you look for to start the conversation to understand what's going on? So I do a lot of hormone testing in blood. Um, I also do the urine testing, the Dutch test a lot. So in blood, I do a lot of baseline. So cycle day two or three during the period, I'll do FSH, LH, estradiol, um, and then some androgens like androstenedione, um, testosterone, um, DHEAS, and sometimes DHT if the person has like a lot of hair loss or something like Hirsutism. around the, the luteal phase. So usually that's depending on when they ovulate between cycle day 19 to 21, I'll look at estradiol and progesterone. I uh, also always test the thyroid back on the, the cycle day three, if possible, two or three, because it's just a more consistent baseline if you, if you but that's not always going to happen. It's, it can get complicated to test someone's thyroid at that time every month or every time that they go. And then I, do, I test cortisol. Um, so I do either the Dutch test for that or salivary cortisol or serum cortisol, uh, urine, urine, uh, 24 hour urine cortisol is another one I do a lot of, and I do a lot of metabolic markers. So fasting insulin, um, CRP, um, uh, lipid panels, like looking at triglycerides, um, and then some nutritional markers, um, so B12, vitamin D, um, and then, you know, some of the markers in organic acids I do as well, like methylmalonic acid, 
for vitamin B12. It just really depends on the patient. So I'll kind of customize the panel for them depending on what I want to find out. Then um, when we get the results back, then we can come up with a, a treatment plan. So for somebody just starting out and let's say they're saying they're hearing this this talk and they're saying, oh, well, I might have PCOS or I might have fill in the blank. Um, what would be one test that you would first have them start? Or is there not that it's just it's case by case basis? It is always a little bit case by case. And I find like cost is always the thing. So you want to kind of you know, as much as it would be nice to get all the tests for everybody, um, you know, a lot of people are paying out of pocket for these tests. So um, for PCOS, I would say the ones that are really important are FSH, LH on cycle day three, and then the androgens. So androstenedione is the most more sensitive androgen. Testosterone, total testosterone is not always the most accurate androgen. The reference range shows most women as normal, even if they have high androgens, and it always depends on the woman's age. So that has to be looked at with a, a certain lens. Um, Andresen Dion's a little like that too. I'll usually do DHEA um, insulin. I usually look at uh, the thyroid as well. Another test that's very helpful for PCOS, which a lot of people don't get done, and this can sometimes just be diagnostic and when you're not really sure, anti-malarian hormone, that test for the egg reserve number, number of eggs. Women with PCOS have higher egg reserves. So they have a lot of eggs in their ovaries and that hormone is high for their age. So I do that one a lot in, uh, in PCOS. Endometriosis, uh, there is one blood test that can sometimes be helpful. Um, it's called uh, CA125, which is actually commonly used for ovarian cancer. So I always advise to get an ultrasound as well, just to make sure. But if you do that test during your period, many women with endometriosis will have high levels of that. And that's because of the inflammation in the pelvic area it causes this hormone, uh, this, this marker to be high. And then um, I also look typically at estradiol and progesterone at that peak cycle day, because sometimes they have low progesterone or high estradiol. So, um, and then I look at systemic inflammation markers for them. So CBC um, and then a CRP. And then I always look at the thyroid uh, actually in both, but in endometriosis, a lot of patients have thyroid antibodies. Um, it has that crossover with autoimmune and inflammation. So I look at that a lot too. So it really is an investigative kind of detective role that, that you have to play to say, okay, is it, is it too much or too little? Is it just hormonal imbalance or is it more of an autoimmune disease and hunting and finding to figure it out? I kind of look at, you know, that's why I always uh, have a consult before I recommend the testing mm -hmm. um, because, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll suggest different kinds of testing depending on their symptoms. But like with all of these conditions, you know, it's always looking at like, what are the factors in their case that are unique? Like not everybody with PCOS has a lot of insulin resistance. So, but if they have it, you want to treat it. So it is very investigative. That's why I never get bored because I feel like I'm always um, solving puzzles and, you know, it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, just to round off, cause I know, I know we can, I can go through a whole bunch of other questions, but maybe we'll leave those for the upcoming Q&A with you next weekend. Uh, and then people can ask their questions there as well, specific to their experiencing. And just to, to round off, maybe we could just do a couple of rapid fire questions. Sure. All right. Let's see here. What would you tell your 15 year old self? Well, other than not listening to the tampon lady, I would probably <laughs> uh, tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> yup. Yup. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, I think at that age, if I think back to myself, I was so unaware of my own body. Like I just didn't understand anything about it, you know, and I had this really severe cystic acne that I would go to the dermatologist and be prescribed antibiotics, you know, and I would just take them thinking, you know, this would be the solution or birth control pill. So I would just go back and ask myself to like learn more about my body and ask questions and you know, don't just, if something feels wrong, you know, get it looked into. So I think like, you know, learning that way to advocate for my own health would have been, you know, one of the biggest things for me at that age. Yeah. And not feeling uncomfortable with asking those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about women's health, what would it be? I would actually make it, uh, make the research equal so that, you know, we have more information on how to help women, because I think without that basis, we're always going to be lagging behind. And, you know, the medications aren't tested in women the same way. Um, Women are, you know, just dismissed, even though there are physiologic reasons that we have different responses to things. So I think it comes back to that, like having that research and having that funding um, you know, made equal for, for men and women and having, you know, the studies have equal uh, female participants. So um, that would be my biggest thing. And then I guess to go further onto that would be better training of doctors with respect to uh, women's conditions, because um, I feel like many primary care practitioners are fantastic. They're, they're not given as much information on, on female hormones and how, you know, that that actually does make a major difference. So I feel like those two things would be, I, if I could wave a wand, I think those would be great. Amen. And the last question, what has been one teacher or book that has changed your way of thinking? Uh, there's probably two, if I'm just talking about women's health, I would say one of the best books that I found really helpful was is Taking Charge of Your Fertility. It's a really great book to learn all, all that you need to know about how your body works, like with respect to your cycles, like how to, you know, to, to uh, take your temperature, how to look at your cervical mucus and how to understand your cycles. And when I read that book a long time ago, it really like changed my, my outlook and it really opened my eyes to this whole world of different differences that happen in our bodies. Another uh, researcher from University of BC, Jerry Lynn Pryor, is someone I look up to very much. And she has uh, for many years, um, research cycling of progesterone to help correct female hormonal cycle issues. And that this can be used, you know, um, for a whole wide range. And I, I use her protocols for PCOS in my practice and my doctors in my clinic use them too. For PCOS, for endometriosis, for heavy periods, for hypothalamic amenorrhea. And this is an amazing treatment that um, basically she really did all the research and development for her. So I admire her and she's influenced my practice so, so much. And can you just say her name again in her book? Yeah, her name's Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor. She's actually a researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, she does have a book on perimenopause, but her uh, website is, um, I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but yeah. it's, uh, it's the Center for Menstrual Cycle Research. I can give you the link later, um, but it's a wealth of information. I would definitely suggest to check it out, but she, she's, uh, she does a lot of research. Uh, so she's, um, you know, uh, a researcher, uh, has run so many studies and, uh, super, super interesting. 
Okay, perfect. Yeah, we'll, we'll include it in the show notes and uh, on WealthCo uh, so people can check it out because anything to do with research and, and the female cycle or anything to do with kind of health and women, I think a lot of, a lot of us are, are looking to read more about um, because again, research yeah. is unfortunately so either just shifted over to, to men or for whatever reason, and there's multiple reasons, um, we're just not getting enough research on us. So, um, so yeah, we'll definitely link that. Yeah. Um, thank you. So this is this has been really wonderful, informative, and I I hope that this has been helpful for for folks as well. I mean, it's been helpful for me just to understand more about my cycle um, because many of the things that you talked about I had no idea about. Uh, so thank you. And where can people find more about you? Find kind of read your book. Where where are you available for people to learn, listen, and learn more? Oh, thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, it's been great, and I'm just happy to connect with everyone. I have a clinic in Toronto. It's called White Lotus Integrative Medicine, and my website is whitelotusclinic.ca. And uh, so we see patients there. Um, I have uh, myself and three other naturopathic doctors on our team. So we treat lots and lots of patients with all kinds of hormone problems, <laughs> right from you know puberty um, all the way up to menopause. And um, I also have a book called Eight Steps to Reverse Your PCOS. So if you have PCOS or even just want to learn more about hormones, because there's a lot of just general hormonal information in there, please check it out. I'd love it if anyone would like to read it. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate it, Dr. Fiona. Thank you, Dasha. After that convo with Dr. Fiona, we can see that there's so many moving parts to women's health. It's both fascinating and annoyingly frustrating, isn't it? Check out Dr. Fiona's book that I mentioned in the beginning, Eight Steps to Reverse PCOS. It's available on Amazon and it's money well spent. We also have a list of books that we love available on our forum as well, so be sure to check that out. If you learned something during this episode, will you do us a kindness and leave us a review or tag us on social media? Let's share the wealth together and get more women learning and becoming more in tune with their cycles. If you enjoy content like this, then chances are you'll love our global online private community of women's health explorers. You can join us at www.wealth.community. Catch you there. Until our next health or exploration, stay well.